everybody. Hello. Thank you very much for joining. I'm really excited to have Bobby Robert. Do you go by Robert or Bobby typically? Anything but Rob or Robbie. <laughs> okay, I like it. Well, Bobby or Robert. Robert, I'm really excited to have you. I'm excited to share what you're doing, and I don't think it's something that we talk about very often or enough. And so, um, I guess as we were just saying offline, the innovation that comes and the opportunity that AI is part of that innovation that's really going to be discussed as the industry evolves and throughout the pandemic. So if you don't mind for a minute, real quick, introducing yourself, telling me a little bit about how you got into this industry and where you came from. Well, good afternoon, Maggie. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Bobby Ziner. I am the founder and chief executive officer of Canadian Industrial Hemp Corporation. Uh, we have developed and have now patent pending globally on an AI-driven smart factory uh, for hemp stock processing to convert it into hemp fiber optimization. And we'll do that by uh, redefining the economics and creating new opportunities uh, for products which we can provide with automatic quality control. I got into the hemp business, uh, I guess really going back to my beginnings in the uh, lumber industry, uh, which takes me back to 1973. And uh, I was involved in a family lumber and distribution business, lumber being commodities, uh, distribution being very commodity oriented, hard to differentiate. And we were looking for ways to improve our opportunity and came across secondary processing. And it was a very uh, good way to uh, stabilize our costs on lumber. We would take wide, long pieces of low-grade wood, and we would cut it into smaller, higher-value pieces uh, that would fulfill our specific market needs. And in that way, we found that we were able to be much more competitive in the marketplace. And so our sales grew considerably. But what wasn't growing was the margin. Uh, because we were trading the margin for the market penetration. And out of that, I became interested in how automation may be an opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. So this was in uh, 1988. I approached General Electric Factory Automation. I had read an article about them in an engineering magazine with regards to uh, the completion of basically the world's first automated production facility. Uh, GE owned a lock locomotive assembly uh, plant in upstate New York. Uh, what I read about that factory was uh, just amazing. Uh, the way how the entire production was being controlled by the computer systems. And uh, I had always been very interested in computers. I put a computer into our family business in 1984. And no, I'm sorry, that was 1974. Really? Yeah. Was it huge? Um, it was the original version of the mini computers, which were about the size of a small cabinet. Okay. And it had four megabytes of removable memory and an 8K processor. <laughs> uh, for that, and one screen and a 60 line per minute printer. That needed a paper tape, it was $42,000. And in those days, you could buy a house for $42,000. But uh, it really made a huge difference in our operation 
in the past, we were doing about $5 million a year in sales at that time. And we were finding it was taking us three weeks just to get out our month-end statements. When we put in the computer, we were able to ensure that we got the statements out within three days. And that allowed us to grow considerably. And uh, within a year, we went from 5 million to over 10 million. Wow. So uh, going back early, I was very hooked on the uh, differences that uh, digitization could make uh, to business. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, um, I had discussions with GE. I was fascinated about the way that, uh, you know, our system in my mind seems to, to be a very uh, applicable opportunity because rather than the complexities of putting something together where you have to make sure that the computer makes sure that all the parts are in the right places at the right time, when you're taking apart lumber, you basically are just tracking it until it gets processed and then the byproducts can be processed separately, but you're never worrying about coordinating the inputs. So, you know, that became uh, very interesting to me. I spoke with GE. General Electric had uh, an economic offset with the province of Manitoba. Uh, they had supplied some uh, large electrical turbine generating systems uh, in that province. And they wanted to use our technology, our facility, as a means of fulfilling an economic offset that they had committed to the province of Manitoba. So we partnered on it, and uh, over a two and a half year period, we went to Scandinavia to see some scanning technologies. And in the end, in 1991, I patented the OptiStress system, which was our computer integrated manufacturing application, which also used AI for process control to run the facility and AI for the scanning analysis. Okay. So that was how I got into this area of technology. And uh, I can tell you that we built our facility in 1995. Our sales then were $37 million. And by 2001, uh, utilizing our new technology, our sales had gone to $240 million uh, in that year. Impressive. When I, was, when I was doing my research with uh, General Electric, I had been getting uh, information on the forest industry and specific costs through a collaboration I had going with the government of Alberta through the Alberta Research Council. And that information became uh, very useful to me. But in the process, again, I was a young man and there was another young bureaucrat who I was working with who was helping me get the data. And he seemed to like very much my uh, fascination, my fixation my compulsion with uh, avoiding waste, with utilization. And uh, in fact, in 1995, I trademarked the line, the best form of conservation is efficient utilization. But he really appreciated how I had approached this and how AI provided this opportunity to optimize value. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we, we went our separate ways. Uh, however, out of nowhere in 2016, I got a call from him. He had now become a senior bureaucrat in the government of Alberta and inviting me to go to China uh, to a conference that was being put on 
to review the deportation issue. And they specifically wanted to get my opinion as to whether I felt that AI would be an applicable technology for the hemp fiber processing opportunity uh, because of my work with wood fiber in that same capacity. And because he remembered my perspective, uh, out of nowhere he called me and I was, you know, I had 10 days notice, quickly got my visa and uh, off I was to China. And when I saw how they operated, I mean, the their whole uh, value chain, their whole business model is entirely different. It's completely focused on um, flexibility using labor. I mean, you know, if they have to move it this way, that, and do this and that, no problem, because the labor isn't a real cost factor. And this gives them great utilization of the fiber. But I also appreciated that that just wouldn't translate to North America. And with that in mind, I came back uh, home and uh, the next day I incorporated Canadian Industrial Hemp Corporation. Now, I should also tell you that when uh, I went to do my MBA in 2001, this was just three years after the Canadian government had legalized hemp growing again. In two courses, we needed to pick a new industry or to create an industry. And for both of these courses, I uh, picked hemp. And when I read the information about the hemp fiber characteristics, you know, I was, I was hooked. Uh, with hemp fiber being 10 times stronger than Douglas fir, which is known in North America as the strongest softwood fiber, I was amazed. And then to hear that it was also antibacterial, it was really, uh, it was uh, a very exciting moment for me. So, when I had the opportunity now in uh, 2016 to start working with the uh, fiber processing, I uh, found, I was very fortunate, uh, I found an engineer in Alberta who had uh, been running the Alberta government's hemp research facility. He had originally specced it and installed it. Uh, a lovely guy, very, very talented, very bright. And uh, together we developed this uh, AI-driven smart factory. Um, and with that in mind, you know, the, the key elements were really uh, have flexibility, have automated quality control, have the ability, therefore, to increase the potential value added to optimization, and significantly uh, to be a low-cost producer, and more significantly, not to be a commodity producer. And the reason being that, uh, as I have written uh, often in LinkedIn, uh, the problem with being a commodity producer is the only real thing that you can differentiate yourself with is cost. And it always makes you vulnerable to having your margins eroded and uh, lacking stability uh, in your marketing opportunity. Sure. And commodities, by definition, um, Prices go up and down, there is much less stability. So over a period of 18 months, we worked together and uh, we have now gone to the point with our intellectual property that we've been granted uh, patent pending on a global basis. And very interestingly, uh, the first place in the world which has already uh, registered our patent is China. Huh. Surprising. Uh, so this is super 
appealing to me because in order for us to compete or people to compete really, especially on the international scale, we have to be able to process volume and keep our costs down, right? And AI is really reducing costs when it comes to our labor expense, especially if we're having to shift, like you said, from one facility to the next or... Well, let me give you a different perspective. You know, it's not on the labor cost necessarily that you want to focus. But as an example, um, if you look at the ability to have AI-driven predictive maintenance, which comes inherent in an AI system because of its optimization focus, they say that on maintenance costs alone, you'll save 40% a year. Wow. And that you will also benefit by having... 25% less downtime. I mean, that's where you make money. And you know, Mandy, it's an interesting element to bring up because people think that AI might be this like, it's like you have this little monkey in a box, he's really smart and he knows what to do. No, it's about the fact that it lets you take all the pieces of the operation, optimize them so that they perform exactly as you want them and need them to and that they communicate in exactly the way that you want them to need them to. And then that way you get incremental savings through the entire process. So predictive maintenance, 40% in costs over the year, 25% reduction in downtime. You take something like automated production scheduling. Well, how valuable is it if you have a major consumer uh, client like Ralph Lauren to be able to tell them exactly when their production is going to be made because the system automatically figures it out. And if there's any delay in that production schedule, the system will automatically send them an email saying there's been a delay. So we're not going to make it on March the 8th, we're gonna make it now on March the 10th, and we're not gonna ship it on March the 11th, we're gonna ship it on March the 13th, and it's going to arrive at your door on March the 15th. But the system handles all of those logistics and all of the analysis. And that's in less than a minute and a half. It's impressive. It's a it's it's again where I struggle. I laugh because this automation piece is not something I'm good at. I mean, we talk, even when we talk, you're like, why are you writing invoices? This is still the format I do this. So when we talk like being in the lumber industry and the secondary post-processing. How is that similar? And are you going into creating products for that same end user? Or where are you, you know, where are you guys headed in, in the hemp space for, for production of material? Back so can, we don't produce commodity outputs like the bast in the herd. Right. We produce finished products. Right. So the finished products that we intend to focus on would be the biocomposite pellets. Where, again, because of our AI capabilities, the system is able to automatically formulate, custom formulate the pellets. And as well, the system is able to automatically produce those custom formulated pellets. So again, in the type of environment that we have, unlike the conventional environments where you are producing for inventory, you're just going to pump bundles through the system, we produce to order. And this way we have much less waste, much greater control on our production throughput. And again, with our automated quality control system, 
we're able to ensure that the quality of the bales that we put in are consistent with the needs of the end user. So we use a very advanced scanning technology, which unlike a plain optical scanner, which measures the size or the uh, location um, of an object, right. our, our technology actually measures the internal material characteristics of the fiber. Okay. And the five characteristics that we are focused on, because these are the ones that matter to the customer, are cellulose, hemicellulose, lignin, moisture, and color. The cellulose defines the strength. Hemicellulose is a byproduct, a sugar. Lignin defines adhesion. The moisture has a number of areas of uh, interest, but uh, it primarily affects us from a production point of view with the, pro with the processing rate. If it's just, if it's too wet, then we'll bypass the bale automatically. But if it's just a bit too wet, we can, the system will automatically adjust the production speed so that it won't tear the fiber. Okay, so this plays a big role in standards, right? Because if you're able to adjust to take product in, it doesn't have, and it doesn't have to be dried a certain way or processed a certain way it changes your ability or the industry's ability to provide or a, an outlet for all of our farmers. Is that right? Because really they well, can. Uh, yes, I think that it's, it, I think it's critical because again, uh, one of the things that I've written about a number of times is consistency and without consistency, there isn't a market. And I think it's unfair to the farmers because, uh, it, it ends up becoming an all or nothing equation in terms of uh, the material they supply. But if you have a, a good understanding of the material characteristics and you develop a wide range of products that can be automatically formulated, not just in terms of bioplastics, but in terms of non-wovens, in terms of different levels of textile quality, then you optimize the uh, utilization, you optimize the value. Um, of the fiber. And so that's where we believe that the real opportunity comes because Mandy, I must tell you that our technology allows us to be so much more cost effective uh, than a conventional comparably sized unit um, to the one that we will work with, which is uh, a Cretus seven ton per hour uh, from Belgium. Uh, as far as we're concerned, it's the Rolls Royce of the industry in terms of large volume capacity. The company's been around for 110 years. Mm -hmm. Huge amount of they have a huge amount of uh, experience and expertise uh, in the decortication equipment manufacturing. Uh, they do it not only for hemp and flax, but also for uh, banana leaves, for cactus, um, and for recycled uh, fibers uh, from textiles. Uh, cool. I'm sorry, please. I said cool. I've seen oh. their, their equipment in, in another presentation and it is significantly larger. I mean, it's it's night and day to some different decorticating facilities I've seen and yes. I've well, 
it's twelve million dollars different. I mean, it's a twelve million dollar uh, you know production line. It's uh, large volume. It scales. It uh, it's a very impressive piece of equipment and very expensive. Yes. But at the yeah. same time, you know, uh, it provides the reliability, the consistency. It provides the flexibility in terms of the number of times that you would need to uh, clean fiber for different applications, etc. Uh, this is a type of thing that the hemp industry, like every industry, needs uh, from a processing or manufacturing perspective. Um, it's it's not really an option. You can pretend that it's not necessary, and that may be true for a while. But you see, because our technology is so much more effective, our um, gross margins are double to what the conventional industry uh, produces. And I believe that it's important for me to bring down our margins because that's the only way we will actually help the industry grow is by bringing down the cost of the fiber, bringing down the cost of the end products, and in that way, more people will buy it, more farmers will grow it, there will be more to decorticate, but as far as I'm concerned, as a true believer, the most important thing is to make sure that more hemp is grown. Yes. And so, uh, but you see, the reality being, in that world of me bringing down my margins, by being more cost effective, I impact other processors because of the margins that they can generate. So, um, you know, th this is where I have tried to make a point of letting people understand what the economics and the dynamics are of, a, of an AI-driven smart factory. Um, and it's not just for hemp processing. You know, it really doesn't matter. It's the ability to be able to slice a salami. It's no longer one pass through and you get what you get. Now it's, you know, do custom cutting uh, between the front and the end line. You know, in that regard, we have a, a blockchain registry right in our system. And that allows us to track all the material bale by bale, which allows us to correlate those bales to each farmer. And we actually monitor and track how much yield, dollar yield we make on each bale. So we're able to come up with the average dollar yield per bale. And based on the average dollar yield per bale per farmer, we know which our most productive farmers are for our needs then we can take all their agronomic data because before we process any of their stock, they provide us with the varietal, the date they planted, date they harvested, was it irrigated or dry land, was it fertilized, what fertilizers, how often. And then we take the top five farmers and we take their agronomic data we feed it through the AI system, through its machine learning capabilities. It will do a reverse statistical analysis and come up with the optimum agronomic equation. It will say, based on these factors and looking at the different yields from the different farmers, this would have been your ideal solution.
And we give that information every year to the farmers free to help them become more productive and hopefully they can earn more money. <coughs> so then do they contract with you as the processor to buy the product and then you sell your end product on? Yes. Okay. That's what I, okay. What's your volume? How many acres would you say? And I know that's hard because of course there's so much to consider, but what are we looking at in order to support an industry, the size that you're looking to go after with biocomposites composites? Wow. Well, each of our facilities is designed and uh, projected to be able to produce 50,000 tons of throughput a year. 50,000 tons would come from 42,000 acres of land grown for seed, and that's because statistically the uh, volume of stock that you get from one acre planted for hemp seed is between one to one and a half tons per acre. Okay. When you are planting for fiber, you are planting the plants closer together, they grow much taller, and statistically you get 3.6 tons to 12 tons per acre. Whoa, now, that's a big difference. 3.6 to 12? It has a lot to do, again, with your agronomics and your microclimates, your climates, and the varietals. Yes. But, you know, uh, the point is, so we use in all of our pro forum analysis a figure of five tons per acre. We feel that that's a reasonable number. And based on that, we pay farmers up to $250 a ton for their stock. And working on a five ton per acre ratio, uh, they would earn $1,250 gross per acre. And their costs would bring them down to netting about $675 per acre. Mm, that's good information. What are you comparing in, in your area? What, what are some of your big, or, or I guess not even in your area, globally, nationally, whatever. What are some of the crops that, that hemp competes with um, when it comes to cost and or, um, yeah, cost? I mean, when our farmers are growing, where are we really looking to, go ahead. Mandy, I'm not a farmer, but the only thing I can tell you is farmers are very hardworking and clever people. And the bottom line is that it's not how much it costs them to do it, it's how much they can put in their pocket. Sure. So um, today, farmers will get between five and $600 for regular non-organic hemp seed per acre. Okay. So. Uh, this is uh, a better equation because I'm talking a net number. Okay. Yeah, you exactly. See? Yeah. Because don't forget, yeah, so you're, you're comparing the 600 to the 1250. Yeah. And no, I look at your... I'm sorry? I look at the net. I mean, if I walked in and said, hey, this is how much I'm going to pay you, and their costs are sitting at $900 an acre, and their cost is... $900, that doesn't leave them anything. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I love that you broke it down to net, net problems. Well, that, the other thing is that if you look at hemp in terms of where it's appropriate, yeah, you know, people often think that, you know, the, the, the hotter a place is, the better it is. It's an exotic type of uh, plant. It's not. 
One of the interesting things about Northern Canada, which is very often overlooked, is that it's probably one of the best places, if not the best place in North America for growing hemp. You get okay. one crop a year, but the quality of what you will grow will tend to be exceptional. And the reason is because hemp needs a bit of water, but it'll thrive without water. It's a weed. Mm -hmm. What it loves is sun. And in Northern Canada, you're getting areas where the sun's there 22, 23 hours a day. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, know that or appreciate that, you know, that makes a big difference. And that also impacts the quality of the fiber that you will be able to mm -hmm. uh, generate. So when we talk about supplying the big industry, you know, one of the big questions Oh, someone just had a good question for you, Robert. What about the snow? How often, you know, cold weather, it's a, it's growing in 120 days, right? But what's the, what are you looking at as far as weather up there? How many crops do you get? No, you're getting one crop a year. Yeah. And, you know, if you are good at your logistics and you're working closely with the farmers, you can coordinate it perfectly. Because you see, when you're growing for fiber, you're talking about, uh, 12 week growth cycle. Yeah. And um, it, the, the timing will work out just perfectly up there. You know, but but again, the, the economics are, are different. What it means is that we would have higher costs associated with storage. You know, it takes 300 acres if you're actually fulfilling fire regulations to store 50,000 bales. Because that's what 50,000 tons of throughput is. 50,000 bales. So it really is this. It's something that when we talk about, like, especially as people want to get into the industry, understanding that the front end and back end of the harvest, you know, the storage piece before processing. And then once it's processed, that next step. Um, I just don't think that that piece is discussed very often either, Robert. Can you kind of explain what does that look like? I mean, is that storage going to happen on your facility? You will have a place to store all of those bales as you're processing no, them in? No. The other okay. thing is, if you're storing 50,000 bales, the last thing you're going to do is store them all together. Sure, because of course. If there, if there does happen to be a fire, you're toast. So we address that in two ways. First of all, um, in those areas, um, you know, with, for areas where snow is an issue, uh, what you're going to do is you're going to wrap every bale and you're going to have a uh, a pre uh, you're going to have a, a, a an area designed uh, to open your bales and uh, check you know for uh, the weighing and, and all that which is not associated with the infeed to the decortication line itself so it's a pre-processing uh, environment uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, welcome environment. Almost in the harvesting piece, right? I've kind of broken it up. Like it's the seed to or genetics to harvest, and then processing is when you would pick it up and take it from there. Um, but yeah, so talk to me a little bit about the end market. I want to kind of help understand, or for myself even understand what the volume output is in order for us to sustain big volume because i hear all the time why aren't we doing this why aren't why isn't every automotive industry using hemp right and what is required in order for these companies or people to get into the industry in order to supply a ralph lauren or a lego or a toyota some of these 
big global producers. And how do you as an organization, I guess, recommend or plan to, to fix this or solve this to be able to feed into that industry big enough? Well, you know, again, first of all, uh, from, from my perspective, it, it all results from our technology our, and our, and our uh, use of uh, data processing to, you know, give us better answers. Now, um, sorry, ask me the question again, Mandy, you lost me there, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm, I'm really good at asking four or five questions at one time because I get... I noticed, yeah. <laughs> I'm really good at getting confused. <laughs> Our end markets, right? Our big markets. What yes. do we need to do as an industry or as a company, CIHC, to be able to fulfill an order to a large manufacturer? Right. Like so what we need to be able to do is provide them with large volumes on a reliable and consistent basis. The material we provide has to have good grading, as, uh, some type of objective standards graded. Um, and I personally believe that it is critical to have automated uh, quality control. Uh, we also, uh, CIHC, because each of its facilities uh, will be 100% um, digitally controlled, our business model is to build a network of five facilities across North America so that we can be in a uh, unique position to provide large-scale end-users with distributed manufacturing uh, you know, I, I, I generally uh, explain what I mean about distributed manufacturing with uh, an example. Um, imagine Ralph Lauren, who has now announced that he's going to build, uh, you know, he's going to produce uh, hemp fiber jeans. And he's probably, the company's going to probably spend the 20 to $40 million marketing uh, that product. And he's going to go and he's going to look for some fibers uh, to supply him. And um, everything's going, you know, he's going to make the deal at a certain price and everybody's going to be happy and it's going to be going along well. And then let's say uh, three months into the contract, there's a hailstorm uh, that takes place in the area. You know, the, they say that the economic geographic area for a, um, the, the distance between the farms and the plant shouldn't exceed a two-hour drive, so 120 miles either side all around the facility. Well, you know, if there's going to be a hailstorm, there's a good chance that it'll hit within most of that area. If there's going to be a hurricane. So there's, a, there's always the possibility with the natural fiber that your supply uh, gets wiped out by nature. So, I mean, what does the supplier do who doesn't have the flexibility to, you know, turn immediately elsewhere and fulfill the needs? Uh, all he can really do is call up Ralph Lauren and say, Sorry, I'm sorry, and I don't think, yeah, I don't think Ralph Lauren's going to be pleased about that. But in our particular case, because all of the production is identified by bale quality, the system will automatically just go through the network of facilities, find the inventory that's available that fulfills those needs, and the order will be transferred immediately to that facility so that the customer doesn't get let down. So, I mean, these are the types of customer-centric um, considerations that we have. Uh, another example, as I told you before, with the, uh, the, the predictive scheduling or the automated scheduling, 
You know, uh, a person goes to place an order, they sit down at the computer. The first question that comes up on the computer screen is, when are you going to want this order delivered? And uh, I'd like it at my office or my operations by such and such a date. Okay, then it's going to say, okay, what material are you looking for? What's the contract number? You know, please review this, that, and whatever. Well, within one minute, the system is going to tell it, What's you have been, your, your production has been scheduled for this time. And within the next 30 seconds, it will say, it is going to be shipped on this date at this time. And within the next 10 seconds, it will say it will arrive at your door at this time. So, I mean, and this idea that, you know, the system will automatically advise them if there's going to be any delay, at least they can plan around it. But how valuable is that to the end user? Well, look at what happened this this year with the land hurricane in the United States and wiped out 140 million acres or something of crop that now what do you do with that, right? Or you gave an example earlier that I don't think that another huge value to AI, like you said, is this 24-hour, seven-day-a-week processing. And what happens if you lose a hammer on your mill and it's shipped in from California or from um, China and now, sorry, you don't get your part and now your entire facility is down there's no way you can maintain a contract to the size and the volume that we're looking to fulfill if those aren't figured out and those aren't able to be redirected to a different facility. And so, yeah, I, I just, the more we talk about this and the more that I talk about scalability or, or where we're going to step in as a country in the United States to compete. And I know you're not there, but this is where, you know, I'm an example. Though. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, in the last couple of years, when you go to a machine and you get a can of pop, the can is automatically calling the distribution company once the number of cans has been dispensed. So that it never happens that a customer is willing to put in 250 for a can of water with sugar. So this way, that machine will always be kept full. Those are the types of things that change the way the customers react to your particular brand, to your particular business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we recognize that we have a critical relationship with the farmers that we work with, which is why I have a personal interest as well to facilitate co-ops using our technology so that they can benefit. And in that regard, you know, I, I'm, I'm really anxious to work with a group that wants to be in the position that the co-op will have the uh, work with the farmer for the supply. And at the same time, they'll get the benefit of the value added that we can create to their fiber. Yes. And give them a way. I, I have a soft spot for small towns and rural areas and giving them as a small town a way to keep their families from you know they graduate high school and they're out of there as fast as they can because there's nothing for them to do and so i think this is co-ops are definitely something that i for a year and a half have said i just it's very nice that you like them but you know on a very pragmatic level research has demonstrated that yeah. co-ops are 30 percent more likely to stay in business 
in private companies. And that's not too hard to understand. Right. You know, you become part of a community and community, especially this day and age, is so critical. Um, it gives people a place where they can be employed. They have a, a social environment. Uh, I, I personally think that, you know, we live in a very uh, isolated environment in terms of uh, the way that people often interact. I think that uh, there's a lot of lonely people out there, and uh, I think that a work environment with the right, with the right, right uh, rules, with the right agreements, with the right commitments among the people can be an ideal place to build a community uh, that thrives. And uh, people making good wages, uh, again, uh, in, in our particular model, the lowest paid job was $17 an hour plus full 24% benefits hourly. Um, that's how I see the deal to be done. And we still make a 47% EBIT job, you know, operating that way. Why shouldn't we be fair to the farmer and fair to the people we work with? Absolutely. Yes, we're getting away from greed. You know, when we talked about a, a revolution, I think that's exactly what we're up against is more and more people are saying, listen, we've got to back up and get away from a few people owning everybody's wealth and start taking care of the people that are growing it. <laughs> uh, we got to look after each other. That goes without saying. And um, it would be nice to see if uh, hemp could, you know, bring some type of uh, unification opportunity to uh, the good yes. people of the world. Yes. Okay. So I've got a couple other questions I want to ask real quick. We're about out of time, but yeah. what, when you divide facilities or you're putting say five facilities out to maintain, you know, consistency, where in the world or, how are you? How are you segmenting? Where will they be? Well, at this particular point, uh, CIHC's intention is to uh, license and partner with the five facilities um, in Canada and the United States and Mexico, okay. and that would be the first five facilities. And uh, beyond that, we expect that if the model, as we uh, propose it, works as well as we believe it will. Uh, we'll be building a number of other facilities um, within that environment. And for other areas of the world, we'll be licensing the technology. Awesome. Okay. And then when we talk about standards for the industry, right, you mentioned it a little bit. Something that really stood out to me is your ability to control the standards within the operation um, is pretty powerful because every time that supply chain is broken or there's a new person that steps in that standard and understanding that standard changes the ability to buy or sell or protection in doing so, right? What type of standards does the industry really need to be focusing on as we move this forward, move the industry forward? Quite honestly, I, I don't know that without some type of scanning and automation, we can have standards. Now, I will mention this. Okay. that our technology, the automated quality control, uh, again, the machine learning over 12 to 18 months, we believe, will take the data, which will automatically sort. So it'll say, okay, this is for somebody who's using textiles, and these are the criteria, 
and over 12 kT lines, it will create its own grading system because it will have what's in the top 25% quartile, the characteristics for people who need high quality textiles, but it will have um, the top 25% quartile for people who are using it for biocomposites. So right. they'll be similar, but not the same. Right. And um, they will have, they will do the, do the top quarter and the bottom quarter and the two middle quarters. So it will be excellent, good, fair, and poor, but that will be grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four. But you'll have one textile, one tea, you'll have one biocomposite, one B. And I believe, I believe that our technology will become the de facto automated grading standard system for the industry. Okay, now I'm super excited. Between the co-op and the standards piece, it just, it's where I think we need to be. And so I'm excited. Can I say one more thing, Mandy? You get, you get me so excited talking about uh, the smart stock system. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say. I no, we were talking about standards and co-op and uh, the grading system. Oh, no, I know what I want to talk about, uh, the level of risk in implementing our technology. Yes. So, you know, uh, because of my background in uh, this type of uh, environment before, I was very, very aware of designing this and mitigating any risk. So from that point of view, uh, the way that I've done it is that all of the equipment, all of the technology, all of the systems that we employ are in existence, proven, and in application in other processing and manufacturing environments. So in essence, our application, it is intellectual property, but it's an application built with AI around it and advanced manufacturing capabilities throughout it. I think that, I think that, that is, I, I mean, you said it very well, but I think that, I don't even remember what I was just going to say. Now you're wearing off on me, Robert. It's coming through our screen. It happens. It happens. Yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Oh, when we were talking about the risk and about uh, understanding, right? I think that one more question is we we're kind of on this. The um, advice to people getting into the industry for smaller facilities, right? and sustainability, something that I hear all the time as well, you know, $3 million or $12 million is too much money. Um, so I'm going to buy this $300,000 decorticating facility. How, what's a time frame you think that that market, I mean, you said earlier, it may last for a little while. What's a time frame you think that that is actually going to be? I have to qualify that statement. It will adapt itself. And this is what I'm suggesting. The market opportunity there is not for the farmer to be selling it to a broker, to be selling it to an end producer. There's just too many pieces of that puzzle. The farmers and the brokers should be working together. They should work together in terms of creating a product, generating a margin, and then agreeing between themselves what percentage of the margin each of them gets. That will be efficient and that will fulfill the, because the broker is going to be able to be very closely involved 
or the distributor with the farmer so that they can ensure that the quality that they need is consistent. And I think in that way, there'll be greater margin to be generated. And I believe that you will see better market penetration and better quality product. For sure. For sure. Well, I'm excited. I want to talk more about the AI. I want to talk more about the opportunity that it brings. I don't think it's something that's discussed nearly enough, especially when we talk about the ability to look at processes and what's efficient and what's not. Um, I'm excited for this grading and a standard to be set to understand what's the best quality seed or place to grow it or how to grow it. Um, the, yeah, for each different product. I think that right now we're still really guessing and the United States specifically is very far behind on that. Well, um, you can't take action with a thought. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this is what's so frustrating with government because they'll talk about, you know, this should be done and that needs to be done, but it's, it's about actually getting things done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the hemp industry needs to uh, recognize itself um, as it has at certain levels as being out of necessity, more pragmatic, more cost effective, and more customer oriented. I think that CIFC does all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really, really excited. I'm excited to have you back. I'm excited to have you on our team. If anybody would like to get in touch with you, Robert, or has questions about partnering or anything like that, how do they reach out to you? R-Z-I-N-E-R uh, -E at C-I-H-C-O-R-P.com. Our designer at cihcorp.com. Perfect. I shared that. I also shared his LinkedIn to connect with you on LinkedIn. He has tons. Robert puts out tons of great articles and content about the industry. There were very forward thinking, but this definitely isn't a, a manufacturing facility in the back in our backyard. We're looking at big scale and moving the industry along. Um, what can we do to support you, Robert? Where can we really? help anybody listening anybody looking to get involved what can we do to support CIHC well you know our, our focus for the last year has been on our product development side in the uh, biocomposite formulations and uh, we took the step of retaining a chemist who has a background working in China and uh, we have created our own formulation at this point which uh, we're working with a large thermoplastic producer uh, here in Ontario Anybody who's interested uh, in getting some of our sample pellets, uh, we'd be happy to hear from them and very happy to send them some samples. Cool. I'm really excited. This is a big market. If anybody else needs anything, don't hesitate to reach out. Robert is a member and joins in on our meetings pretty often. And so please join in. We'll get, look forward to hearing from you again. Like, share, join our group. We're also on Spotify, Google, um, all different types of platforms. I can't even name them all. I just started a Patreon account, which I'm really excited about as well. So I'll send out links. If you guys have any questions, reach out. Other than that, Robert, thank you very much for your time. And we'll see everybody. Andy, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Uh, you're the best. Thank, thank, you, thank you. Okay, see you later, Robert. Bye-bye.